Welcome to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. I'm Kevin Yan, one of the PGY3 Neurology Residents at the Yale Neurology Residency Program, and I have a very special guest with me today. Longtime listeners will undoubtedly instantly recognize Dr. Kevin Wilson, who used to be a previous host of this episode when he was still a resident. Now he is my favorite Yale Neuromuscular Fellow. Kevin, welcome back. Thanks. It's really an honor to be with my favorite Yale class of 2024 neurology resident who's also going into neuroophthalmology. So today I've asked Kevin to come back because as a neuromuscular fellow now, I thought it would be instructive if we go over in detail some of the neuromuscular disorders. Now, some of these topics we have covered in the past in the form of our review lectures and many years ago. But it's instructive to go over them again in a little more detail and to provide some updates about new clinical options that we have. So I thought we would start today by talking about myasthenia gravis. So Kevin, what would be your typical clinical vignette for someone that you're thinking about myasthenia in? Yeah, so the, the hallmark of myasthenia, as many of you may know, is fatigability. Sometimes we'll get calls from people who are concerned about a patient who is weak. Typically, a myasthenia gravis patient is not going to be overtly weak unless they're in crisis. So these are patients who are coming with fatigability. The most common symptom, really presenting symptom, is actually some combination of diplopia and ptosis. So that's patients with ocular symptoms. Again, those things are usually fluctuating and usually fatigable. And that fatigability is the hallmark because there are obviously other reasons that people can have ptosis and there are other reasons people can have diplopia. Now, they'll have fatigable limb weakness, and then sometimes they'll also have bulbar symptoms. So that'll be difficulty swallowing, difficulty with their speech, dysarthria or dysphonia, sometimes hoarseness of their voice even. And then they might even have fatigue with chewing, where they tell you their jaw gets tired if they have to chew on solid foods. So those are the hallmark symptoms, ocular symptoms, the bulbar symptoms, and then, as I mentioned, the fatigable limb weakness, where they'll say, oh, if I have to hold my arms up, say, to brush my teeth or comb my hair, my arms might get tired, or going upstairs might cause difficulties. Your myasthenia patient can be really anyone. It it tends to be a bimodal distribution, which is one of the things they love to test you on, is that it's often either younger women or older men that present, but really anyone across any age group and demographic from four-year-old children all the way up into people in their 80s can present first time with myasthenia. I think in a community setting, perhaps, myasthenia gravis is the one autoimmune condition that we think of that has a more common predilection for older patients as opposed to younger ones. Would you say that's fair, Kevin? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's why I mentioned you can't really take these patients out. You can't really take myasthenia out of your differential based on the age of the patient. So now let's move on and talk a little bit about pathophysiology of myasthenia gravis. I think it's helpful just as a review for everyone to go over the neuromuscular junction. I realize that this is something that's a little difficult to do in an audio format, so we'll try to describe the neuromuscular junction as best we can. Yeah, so I'm not sure how much detail you want me to go in for this, but the basic idea you have, the neuromuscular junction is where the peripheral nerve that's giving information to the muscle reaches the muscle, and there's a synaptic cleft into which a chemical signal is released, and then it communicates with the postsynaptic muscle cell membrane and sort of transmits that message. So, you know, in the sort of presynaptic nerve portion, you have vesicles, quanta carrying your acetylcholine. And then on the postsynaptic muscle cell membrane, you have acetylcholine receptors. The electrical signal of the nerve response is transmitted and causes the release of these presynaptic acetylcholine vesicles, of which a certain portion are clustered towards the nerve terminus and other secondary storage is stored further up the nerve. And that becomes important when we get to the electrophysiologic workup or the, the electrophysiologic findings that you'll get 
So the electrical signal that's primary store at the nerve terminus is released, goes into that synaptic cleft, and then you have binding to the acetylcholine receptors on the muscle cell membrane, and, and thus channel opening and contraction of muscle. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, Kevin, there are three different stores of acetylcholine, right? The primary store is right at the synaptic cleft. That is the only store that's readily accessible to an axon. But we also have secondary and tertiary stores, which are farther away and are more useful for reserve that have a lot more quanta that can be mobilized after some delay. Correct. So if you have sustained contraction, then you're going to mobilize not just your primary stores, but your secondary and tertiary stores as well, which will take a little bit longer. And again, that becomes relevant when we talk about electrophysiologic findings. Uh, so there are many different antibodies that can affect the neuromuscular junction. The key thing for myasthenia gravis is that all of them are postsynaptic antibodies. Correct. So in myasthenia gravis, you're looking only at postsynaptic antibodies that disrupt the postsynaptic neuromuscular junction. So what are the most common ones, Kevin? So the most common antibody that you're going to see, and the vast majority of patients with myasthenia gravis who do have a positive antibody, positive serologies, are going to have the acetylcholine receptor antibody. There's a lot of different locations where the antibodies can bind. Is that right, Kevin? Yeah, that's right. You have antibodies to several different targets on the postsynaptic neuromuscular junction. The most common one that you'll hear about is to the acetylcholine receptor itself. The antibody causes disease through several defector functions. So acetylcholine receptor autoantibodies tend to be IgG1 or IgG3 antibodies. They tend to cross-link and inactivate the acetylcholine receptor. They can also cause internalization of the acetylcholine receptor into the muscle cell membrane. And they also cause complement activation via that cross-linking that I mentioned. So it's involved in all of these things. Other common antibody types that you'll hear about are musk, which is a muscle-specific tyrosine kinase. That's actually an IgG4 antibody typically, which becomes relevant when you talk about treatment modalities and whether or not you think the disease is B-cell mediated primarily or whether there's a T-cell component. It changes how you think about things. Some less common antibodies that you'll hear about, the anti-striational muscle antibody is often associated with thymoma, which is something that we'll talk about when we talk about important next steps in the diagnostic process. And there's also a less common antibody called LRP4. It's like an LDL receptor-related peptide. Both LRP4 and musk are proteins that are involved in the stabilization and shepherding of the acetylcholine receptor to the muscle cell membrane. Excellent. So the pathophysiology of myasthenia gravis, what actually happens is when these antibodies are blocking either the acetylcholine receptor antibodies themselves or part of the following pathway that transmits the signal from the acetylcholine receptor antibody to the sarcoplasmic reticulum in the muscle cells, something of the pathway is getting blocked. So the acetylcholine that the cell releases is no longer able to affect an appropriate muscular response. That's correct, yeah. So you have a chemical signal being released into that synaptic cleft, but because of this autoimmune disruption of that postsynaptic function, the chemical signal is not completely received by the muscle cell and it's unable to contract fully. I think it's helpful if we take a second here to discuss the key clinical feature of myasthenia that you mentioned earlier, Kevin, which is fatigability. So why is myasthenia notable for fatigable weakness? What's the pathophysiology of that? The basic idea is that you have this primary store of acetylcholine at the axon terminus that's being released. Normally, that's enough to sustain muscle contraction until if, if again, sustained muscle contraction is, is desired, is, is the purpose here, until those secondary and tertiary stores can be mobilized. Now, it takes some time for those stores to be mobilized. So the fatigability occurs because of this lag time in mobilizing those secondary and tertiary stores. 
you have the acetylcholine receptor antibodies or whatever other antibody you have that's disrupting the postsynaptic phase of this signal transmission, you have the primary stores that are released and are trying to exert their effector functions, but they're not able to completely overcome whatever inhibition is coming from the autoantibodies that are disrupting that transmission. Usually what patients will have is after a long enough time trying to contract, they'll be able to mobilize those secondary stores and those tertiary stores, but patients aren't able to sustain that full muscle contraction in that time because they're not able to mobilize enough acetylcholine to overcome the disruption that's caused by the autoantibodies that are in the synaptic cleft there. So patients, what they'll often have is they'll be full strength the first time you test them, but if you repeatedly test them because of this diminishing amount of acetylcholine that they're able to mobilize, they become weaker and weaker. You'll see that progressive getting weaker and weaker, the fatigability that I'm talking about in multiple muscle groups you can see it in. So classically, you can check proximal muscle groups. So we'll look at deltoid strength and you'll test deltoid strength. There's a couple of different ways to do this. One of the ways is you can have patients flap their arms repeatedly, say 10 to 20 times to try to use that muscle group, tire it out, create that fatigue. You can also repeatedly resist a patient, so five to ten times repeated resistance, and, and you may find that the first time, yeah, they're full strength, and by the third or fourth time you push, they're four plus or four in terms of their strength grading. Common muscles to do that with are the deltoids. You can do that with proximal muscles of the lower extremity, like the hip flexors. Triceps are also commonly involved there. And it's also usually worth testing neck flexion, neck extension, as that can be a marker for bulbar dysfunction in patients who are likely to develop it. And it's often worth doing repeated testing in either neck flexion or neck extension. The other way you can think about this is it's also relevant to your testing of the ocular system. So I mentioned earlier that ocular findings are very common. You'll find that a patient might not have double vision on leftward or rightward gaze, but if you hold it for, say, 30 to 60 seconds, I often will hold it for 60 full seconds, and I'll find that a patient with mild ocular myasthenia might develop double vision, but not until 45 seconds in. And that, again, is fatigability. This sustained contraction of those extraocular muscles leads to that fatigability. The same thing goes for ptosis. You can have patients sustain their upgaze, and again, this is one of the classic things that we use, for instance, in, in the ice pack test that you may have heard about, is you're having them sustain upgaze to fatigue those muscles. And then in the case of the ice pack test, you might apply a cold stimulus. It's sort of a very low-tech way to decrease the activity of acetylcholinesterase and increase the amount of acetylcholine you have in the cleft to overcome the inhibition that's caused by the antibodies. Ah, excellent discussion, Kevin. I do want to acknowledge that there are some congenital myasthenia syndromes out there. There is, in fact, a lot of congenital myasthenia syndromes, but they will be outside the scope of this discussion. Next, I wanted to move on to talking about the testing that you do when you suspect myasthenia gravis. So what's your typical workup for someone who you're suspecting of having myasthenia, Kevin? As far as making a definitive diagnosis, antibody testing is important. So typically, we'll start with an acetylcholine receptor antibody panel, often with a reflex, at least that's the way that we're able to do it here at our lab, to musk antibody testing. Less commonly, people will send the LRP4 antibody. I'll be honest, I haven't seen it come back positive very often. Once you have the appropriate clinical syndrome that we discussed with the fatigability, either limb fatigability, bulbar issues like difficulty swallowing, speech changes, or ocular symptoms such as ptosis or diplopia, if you have that clinical syndrome plus positive antibody testing, you, you most likely have your diagnosis. Now, of course, there are a portion of patients who are what we call seronegative. They don't test positive for any of these antibodies. Especially in those patients, electrodiagnostics can be helpful. What proportion of patients do you find is usually seropositive or seronegative, Kevin? It depends on where you're looking, but it, roughly like 80% are seropositive. Yeah. 
But again, so you're going to have some proportion of patients that are seronegative. And so what do you do about those patients? It's a little bit more difficult to establish a diagnosis, and that's where we tend to lean more heavily on our electrodiagnostic testing. Now, a really convenient thing, if it, if it comes back positive, because it's a little bit of a simpler task for the EMGer, is the repetitive nerve stimulation testing. And to be clear, there's two different ways you can do repetitive nerve stimulation testing. So there's low frequency at 3 hertz, typically at 3 hertz. It can, it can be between 3 and 5, really. But low frequency, 3 hertz repetitive nerve stimulation that we'll do where you're giving a train of usually 6 to 10 rapid stimulations at 3 hertz and you're recording the muscle response. And what you're looking for there is a decrement in the compound muscle action potential amplitude. So you have 100% amplitude in that first stimulation, and you are looking for a decrement of at least 10% by the fourth stimulation. And what you would also expect to see what would be supportive of myasthenia is for it to actually rebound after that and start to go back up by the sixth, seventh, or eighth. Why is that? So that's the mobilization of those secondary and tertiary storage of acetylcholine like we discussed earlier. So what if the repetitive nerve stimulation is also normal, Kevin? What's the next step you go to? Yeah, the slightly more complicated technically, although I would say it's really less complicated and more uh, just frustrating (laughs) technically test is to do what we call a single fiber EMG. So what you're doing with a single fiber EMG is you essentially have a needle, you're using a a needle EMG and you're using a, a needle that's able to capture two muscle fibers that are firing from the same motor nerve at the same time. And what you're looking for is what's called jitter. So you're anchoring to one of those muscle fibers and seeing this relationship between when one fires and when the other one fires. And jitter refers to the difference in that interval. So if that interval is very variable, that's increased jitter. And so what you'll see with disorders of the postsynaptic neuromuscular junction are really just disruptions of neuromuscular transmission in general, which is an important thing to say about single fiber EMG. What you'll see with many of those is increased jitter. The trick and the important thing to keep in mind when you do single fiber EMG is that it is more sensitive than it is specific. So it's not a test that I would say just send everybody for. It's a test that if you have a patient who has the appropriate clinical syndrome, who looks like they might have myasthenia, it will be productive to get a single fiber EMG if their antibody testing is negative. Because if that test comes back negative, then your suspicion that this is myasthenia gravis is considerably lower. And I think our listeners would also appreciate you reviewing with them the role of a 50 hertz high-frequency repetitive simulation. When we start talking about 50 hertz or high-frequency repetitive nerve stimulation, now we're starting to talk about a suspicion for a presynaptic neuromuscular junction abnormality. And then you're looking for actually uh, an incremental response. So as you stimulate the nerve at that high frequency, you're going to develop an incremental response because you're overcoming the presynaptic difficulties with mobilizing your acetylcholine stores. So one of the tricks that we used to have back in the day was the Tensilon test or the Edrophonium test, which, if positive, is pretty diagnostic for a neuromuscular junction disorder. It's not something that we really have access to these days, but Kevin, I think it would be helpful to review with everyone the pathophysiology of why that works. Yeah, the basic idea behind Edrophonium is very similar to the idea behind common medications that we use, like Mestinon, which we'll talk in a minute. They function as acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, so they increase the amount of acetylcholine that's in the neuromuscular junction there in the synaptic cleft. So if you're doing that, you're overcoming that antibody interruption of transmission of the, of the signal postsynaptically. Of course, the reason we don't use Edrophonium very much anymore is because it comes with potential cardiac problems. And so you have to be very careful that you don't cause a cholinergic problem from a cardiovascular standpoint. So it's not looked upon super favorably now because you have to monitor those patients quite closely. So the ice pack test is a cheap replacement for the tensilon test, but it's not nearly as good. Correct. Not nearly as sensitive. Yeah. And lastly, part of the workup for myasthenia gravis 
includes chest imaging. What are we looking for there, Kevin, and what's the imaging modality you get? You're looking at a CT chest. You don't really need contrast. You're looking for an anterior mediastinal mass, specifically a thymoma. There's an association between myasthenia gravis and thymoma. The pathophysiologic association, I actually don't, I don't know. I'm not sure anyone knows, to be honest with you. But you're looking for thymoma because there is an association between thymoma and myasthenia gravis. So you want to identify those patients because it has important treatment implications as thymectomy can be an important part of treatment for patients with thymomatous myasthenia gravis. So let's pivot and talk about treatment. There's really two different arms of treatment here. There's the chronic treatment for your outpatients who just have myasthenia gravis but are doing pretty well. And there are the people who are coming in with an acute myasthenic crisis. So I think it's maybe helpful if we talk about the myasthenic crisis management first, Kevin. Yeah, so typically your management of a myasthenic crisis is going to hinge on those mainstays for these autoimmune neuromuscular disorders, which are IVIG and plasmapheresis. So you can use either IVIG or plasmapheresis. And again, typically in the rescue therapy model, the IVIG dosage that you're going to look at is two grams per kilogram, and you're going to spread that over the course of between three and five days, usually depending on the patient's tolerance of the medication. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that we typically don't want to think of using oral steroids in a patient who is either in myasthenic crisis or is on the border of myasthenic crisis as there is some data that it can tip patients over and cause clinical worsening in the short term before having clinical benefit in the two-week window. What Uh, about intravenous steroids, Kevin? Intravenous steroids you can actually give, although the evidence for those is less encouraging than the evidence for IVIG and and plasmapheresis, so you're better off making those two the mainstay. Although intravenous steroids, there's not really evidence that it's potentially harmful. And what are some of the monitoring parameters that you use to see if the patient is stable for a floor level of care or if they're respiratorily intact, for example? Yeah, that's the important piece here. So your determination about monitoring is going to come down to your assessment of the patient's primarily respiratory function, but I would say respiratory and bulbar function. And so the respiratory parameters you're going to look at, at least the objective ones, are negative inspiratory force, and you're you're typically thinking of greater than negative 20 centimeters of water. So again, that would be 19 centimeters of water and up, or a vital capacity that drops below one liter. Although I will say vital capacity, you have to think about the patient's body size when you're thinking about that, because sometimes either a lower or higher vital capacity might trigger your concern. And it's really the trend that's more important than any one particular number. Would you say that's fair, Kevin? Definitely. And in clinical practice, I'll tell you that it's important to keep in mind that there are technical limitations to these tests. And a lot of times there can be difficulties with SEAL that can compromise the testing. So it is important to follow that trend and to clinically evaluate the patient yourself and not treat solely based on numbers. What are some bedside exam maneuvers that we can use to to see how the patient is doing in the absence of this data? So they're not perfect, but you can use tests such as single breath counts to test a patient's lung capacity. Now, of course, I will say that there are things you have to keep in mind with that. Some patients, you'll give them instructions to, you know, say, take a deep breath in and count out loud as high as they can before they need a second breath, and they will count very slowly. Some patients will count very quickly. And so that's something that's important to keep in mind. But you're looking at basically how long does that single breath last? And the counting is sort of a proxy for that time. Other things that can be useful, especially for looking at their bulbar function, is you can have a patient just count sequentially from, say, 1 to 50, and you can look for dysphonia or dysarthria that develops as they count higher, and that gives you a sense of the fact that they may have bulbar dysfunction that they don't realize. And that gets into the importance of managing your patient's airway from the perspective of preventing aspiration. So you may want to think about making some of those patients NPO if you're worried about their swallowing dysfunction until they can get a speech and swallow evaluation. What about the role in testing neck flexion? 
Yeah, so again, as I mentioned before, neck flexion weakness is a marker for either bulbar or respiratory dysfunction. So if you find that there's a patient with neck flexion weakness, you should be more concerned about those abnormalities. What's the patient that you'd really think about intubation? I mean, the patient I think about intubation that I'm thinking we're going to intubate right now is a patient who is clearly struggling to breathe. They're using accessory muscles of respiration. That's a patient who you're better off intubating that patient now rather than having to emergently intubate them. A patient who reports some mild dyspnea and maybe has some decrease in their single breath count or maybe a borderline NIF or vital capacity, you might want to monitor that patient. You can monitor them either in the ICU or on a step-down bed, depending on your concern level. But those patients might not need to be intubated right now, but they're going to, be, they're going to bear very close monitoring. Because even these acute treatments that we're talking about, like IVIG or plasmapheresis, those treatments still take a couple days to work. So even if you've initiated treatment right away, you still may see some clinical deterioration in the meantime. And so close monitoring and supportive care is essential. One other thing I think it's helpful to remind our listeners is that neuromuscular weakness patients can deteriorate very quickly from a respiratory standpoint because their lungs are fine. Their lung parenchyma is not diseased, so they can compensate for a very long time up until the very limit of their pulmonary compensation. And then when they're no longer able to compensate, then the deterioration happens very quickly. So that's why it's so important to keep a close eye on these patients from a respiratory standpoint. Exactly. And that's why placement of these patients in terms of nursing care is such an essential piece because you want frequent nursing check-in and nurse availability so that these patients can be monitored very closely. So now let's pivot and talk a bit about the long-term management of myasthenia gravis. What's your typical go-to, Kevin? That's a complicated question, and it depends on a couple of factors. So we discussed earlier that there's acute and chronic treatment. Well, within chronic treatment, you can think about symptomatic management, and you can think about immunomodulatory management. So as far as symptomatic management, I earlier mentioned mestinon or pyridostigmine is the generic name. Again, it's an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that it's purely symptomatic management. It's not getting at any of the underlying immunologic disruption that's driving the disease. And so that's a medication that you can dose almost as needed. A lot of times what people will start off at is, say, 60 milligrams three times a day. But you can dose it at a frequency of anywhere between every three to six hours, every four to six hours. And in higher doses than 60 milligrams anyway, 90, 120 milligrams per dose. And again, that's a medication that you're going to track largely how it manages the patient's symptoms. And it's often limited by its adverse effects, the primary adverse effects. So again, you're looking at cholinergic side effects, but the ones patients most commonly experience are GI distress. So they'll often have diarrhea or gastrointestinal cramping. And so that will usually limit how high a dose a patient can go to on those medications. So that's looking at sort of your symptomatic management. Can you talk about the pathophysiology of this? So it's an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So again, you're just trying to increase that signal. So the problem here is that you have a chemical signal being released from the axon terminus that is being incompletely received by the muscle cell membrane there, the acetylcholine receptor on the muscle cell membrane. So functionally, by inhibiting acetylcholinesterase, which is an enzyme in the synaptic cleft in that neuromuscular junction that breaks down acetylcholine, by inhibiting the action of that enzyme and not allowing it to break down acetylcholine, you're boosting the acetylcholine signal in the neuromuscular junction, thereby potentially overcoming some of that inhibition that's caused by acetylcholine receptor antibodies or by other autoantibodies. Although I will say pyridosigmine tends to work best in patients who have acetylcholine receptor pathology. All right, so what about long-term immunomodulation? Yeah, so long-term immunomodulation is an interesting topic. This is the place where I think there's been the most change in the last several years. And 2021 and 2022, both we had uh, approval of new medications for myasthenia gravis. The classic standbys are your big gun immunomodulators from the past. Main one that we go to is oral steroids, so typically prednisone, at least around here in the U.S., 
So you'll look at oral prednisone. And again, I mentioned before that starting oral steroids, particularly in a patient who might be nearing or threatening a myasthenic crisis, can cause transient worsening. One thing that can help prevent that is actually starting the steroids relatively slowly. So you want to start at a lower dose and ramp up. You're actually less likely to precipitate a myasthenic crisis if you start a patient at a lower dose, like 5 to 10 milligrams, and then ramp them up over the course of several weeks. Prednisone is often a mainstay, and that's largely historically because it works relatively quickly. So the effect from prednisone can be evident within a couple weeks in terms of controlling a patient's symptoms. Now, the problem with treating patients with long-term oral steroids is that long-term oral steroids have pretty much innumerable side effects. And those side effects tend to be dose-dependent and also duration of treatment dependent. If you have a young patient, particularly, say you have a 35-year-old patient who comes in with a new diagnosis of myasthenia gravis, If you are condemning them to decades of chronic steroid therapy, that's going to have significant health consequences for them. So we don't like to keep patients on long-term steroids if we don't have to. And if we do have to, we want it to be on as low a dose as we can possibly manage, Um, ideally less than 10 milligrams a day. Now, the way we do that is with steroid sparing agents historically, and I'll get to the newer medications in a minute, but this oral steroid sparing agents that we've historically used include things such as azathioprine or imuran and mycophenolate mofetil or Celsept. So those are the most common ones. There are others that people will use, things like tacrolimus or cyclosporin. I won't talk about those as much because the side effect profiles are less favorable. We don't use them as commonly. But azathioprine, for instance, is one that we commonly go to. Now, the problem with both azathioprine and mycophenolate is that they take quite a bit of time to become effective. So it will typically take at least six months for patients to get the full efficacy of these medications. So often we'll have patients on prednisone and have stabilized their symptoms on prednisone, and then we'll start the steroid sparing agents. And then after about six months or so, start trying to wean their steroids off as those steroid sparing agents like azathioprine and mycophenolate are sort of reaching their peak clinical efficacy. The things you have to watch out for, so for azathioprine, it's useful prior to initiating to check a TPMT enzyme activity level or a TPMT enzyme genetic test to make sure that they have appropriate TPMT enzyme function. That's an enzyme that's involved in the metabolism of azathioprine. If they don't have that, they're at higher risk of major side effects, particularly leukopenia which is one of the major side effects that you have to monitor for with azathioprine regardless. So typically you'll be monitoring both liver function tests and blood counts periodically in patients as you're starting azathioprine and also with mycophenolate as well. So these are some things to keep in mind for those medications, but they tend to be quite effective. And in many patients, we are able to get them down all the way off of oral steroids and they can be monitored often even with monotherapy with either mycophenolate or azathioprine. Now, in the last several years, we've had several newer medications. Particularly, there's two classes I'll talk about, and then a third medication that I'll mention that there's conflicting data on and is maybe more useful for particular autoantibody serologies. So the newer medications fall into the category of either C5 complement inhibitors or FCRN subunits, so the FCR neonatal subunit of immunoglobulins, FCRN-directed monoclonal antibodies. So those medications, the C5 complement inhibitors, we're talking about things like eculizumab or ravulizumab. 
These are medications that are newly approved for myasthenia. Ravulizumab, I believe, was just approved last year in 2022. Eculizumab several years before that. Now, again, there's no head-to-head trials here. So there's no establishment of superiority with older oral medications and these newer infusion medications because these are all infusions. Now, some things to keep in mind about these in terms of limitations. One is cost. So these are extremely expensive, much more expensive than those oral medications that I mentioned. And in many ways, they're much less convenient than patients. So eculizumab right now is approved for every two-week treatment. That patient will have to be tethered to an infusion center every two weeks. Um, which can be frustrating for many patients. Ravulizumab is a little bit of an improvement on that and actually is slightly less expensive in aggregate because you dose it less frequently. So it's actually more expensive per dose. But since you dose ravulizumab every eight weeks as opposed to every two weeks for eculizumab over the course of a year ends up being slightly less expensive. But eculizumab and ravulizumab are medications that have been approved and can be effective. You can use them as monotherapy. We tend to use them more frequently as adjuncts to patients who are difficult to control with oral steroid sparing agents or for patients who, for one reason or another, cannot tolerate the oral steroids-bearing agents. Now, the other treatment that's relatively new and I think was just approved in 2021 is Fgartigamod or Vivgart, which is the FCRN inhibitor that I mentioned. You may be familiar with this if you, for instance, have a television uh, because the advertisements are everywhere. We get patients coming in asking about it all the time. Again, the major drawbacks are convenience. So the treatment regimen actually is a little bit open-ended. The trial itself didn't establish a definitive treatment regimen, but typically what we'll do is you do a cycle of four weekly infusions. So one infusion a week for four weeks, and then you'll have some gap that can be, typically people will start with say a six-week gap between treatments. So you'll do four weekly infusions, then a six-week gap, and then another four weekly infusions and so on. But that gap can be anywhere between four weeks and according to the clinical trial anyway, it can be quite extensive. Some patients will have a durable sustained response, although I'll be honest, I have not yet seen that in clinical practice. One of the things that we're always told when using Vivgard is you're not supposed to use that if the patient has recently had intravenous immunoglobulin therapy. Why is that, Kevin? Yeah, that's a great question. So the basic way that Fgartigamod works is kind of similar to plasmapheresis, but without the actual pheresing. So the idea behind it is lagging the FCRN subunit and trying to pull those immunoglobulins out of circulation. So using it immediately after IVIG is going to cause some significant problems as you've just introduced a major immunoglobulin load to the patient's system, and now you're co-opting the immune response to try to take that out. Speaking of intravenous immunoglobulin therapy, what's the role in every two week or every so many week therapy with IVIG, either infusions or subcutaneous injections? Yeah, it's an outstanding question. So you can use either intravenous immunoglobulin, which can be infused either at an infusion center or sometimes even at home if the patient has the appropriate insurance, because everyone knows a lot comes down to that. So you can do either intravenous immunoglobulin or subcutaneous immunoglobulin as a treatment for myasthenia as well as a maintenance treatment. Interestingly, as more expensive options, things that are more expensive even than intravenous immunoglobulin and subcutaneous immunoglobulin have come online, insurance companies have become more willing to cover the intravenous immunoglobulin and the subcutaneous immunoglobulin. So these are dosed as maintenance treatments. I'll talk primarily about the intravenous immunoglobulin because that's what's used more commonly in terms of dosing. So you're looking at maintenance dosing, whereas we talked about the crisis dosing where I said two grams per kilogram over three to five days. And obviously you can fuss with that depending on tolerability for the patient. But when you're looking at your maintenance dosing, you're typically going to start with something around one gram per kilogram. And you can give that over one to two days depending on the patient's size and what load that's going to come out to. You can space that. Typically, most people will start with every three weeks, and then you can adjust as necessary. The way you're typically going to adjust is if a patient is doing well and they have no treatment-related fluctuations, by which I mean oh, geez, you know, those two or three days before my IVIG, I can really feel my symptoms coming. So that's evidence of treatment-related fluctuations, which tells me that maybe it's not a good idea to extend the interval. 
But if they're doing great and they have no treatment-related fluctuations, you might extend the interval by a week. Depending on their progress, you might consider extending by a week. At least once a year, you might want to try that, and you can adjust over the course of several months. Thank you very much for joining me on this very informative discussion of myasthenic gravis, Kevin. I hope our listeners took some good learning points from this, especially with the updates to myasthenic gravis treatment since we probably last talked about this. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys learned something.